We're going through our prayer series, um, and you may be thinking teaching on prayer, or teaching how to pray. Most of us know how to do that in some sort, right? Everybody can pray for their meal and do other, do other things like that. Um, but as we go through it, like Pastor Ingrid said, we're using pray as an acronym, and the goal would be that it would be somewhat memorable for you uh, to be a guidepost for like a lifetime of prayer uh, to God. So P stands for pray, uh, or pause, sorry. R for rejoice, A for ask, and Y for yield. Now, before you try to figure out the whole series in your head and not need me at all, let's dive into this week. Uh, So when we pray, what does it mean to rejoice? Now, from Santa Claus to the Tooth Fairy to the Easter Bunny, we seem to have this penchant for um, getting gifts from people who are in disguise or secret, don't we? We want to get stuff from people, but we, we don't want to see who it is. Knowing exactly who they are seems to not, not knowing exactly who they are seems to be a part of the mystery, even to the extent of receiving treats in disguise every October 31st. We like getting stuff from people, but there's some, for some reason we like the disguise in it. It's the act of pulling the proverbial wool over the eyes for fun in a lighthearted way. And last week I mentioned that uh, finding it hard to pause and pray is linked to being distracted or performance. But I wonder if a lack of prayer uh, is not just more than distraction or performance, but there may be a greater issue, a distortion, a deception, a disguising uh, that's taking place today. See, distraction and lack of discipline are things we can work on. We can change those things. But they'll never lead you to potentially your distorted perception of God. A.W. Tozer said this, when it, come, when it comes into our minds, when we think about God, what comes into our minds, sorry, when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. In man's spirituality, our spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. That first sentence, though, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. In other words, how we see God dictates how we try to relate to him. It says a lot about how we try to live our lives. How a culture then sees God is how it will interact with him. And so when we read in the Bible, Matthew 6, 5 to 8, whenever you pray, you must be not like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogue and on street corners to be seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you pray... Go into your private room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't babble on like the Gentiles, since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, because your Father knows the things you need before you ask him. If one thinks that God dislikes them, How would this impact how you hear what Jesus just said there? 
If one thinks that God ignores you when you pray or in life, how would that impact how you hear what Jesus said? If one thinks that God is angry at you, rejects you, is disappointed in you, expects more of you, wants to hurt you or doesn't care, how does that impact? If one thinks that they are God's favorite, how would this impact your relationships? If one's view of God is formed through a, uh, through a Christian who didn't live up to any of his character, how would this be harmful to how you see God? And if faith is all pressure or performance, how is it any different from getting good grades, promotions, or trying to become a higher class of person? How you see God would surely affect how you interact with him in prayer. Your ability to rejoice in prayer. By any means necessary, the enemy assaults one thing, changing how you see God. The how you see God isn't who he really is. Satan, or the adversary, wants you to believe God to be vindictive or distant hard to connect with, uncaring. C.S. Lewis, a contemporary of Tozer, maybe even in response to or after reading Tozer's thought, had this to say regarding our view of God. He said, I read in, the, read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think of God. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance, except insofar as it it is related to how he thinks of us. Now, I think those two things, those two quotes from Tozer and from C.S. Lewis, they're actually just two sides of the same coin. It's by one that we can rejoice in the other. We need to view God as the God who sees us and loves us. See, God not only loves you, he actually likes you. He wants to spend time with you. Like with Zacchaeus, he wants to come over, even when you feel far from him. When the enemy wants to condemn you and tell you God doesn't care and you shouldn't bother him, God spends time wants to spend time with you. So to counteract these lies of darkness, when Jesus teaches us to pray, he could have used anything to start the prayer. He could have used one of many names that God has revealed himself to us as, and yet he chose Father. And it wasn't just Father, it was Daddy. Think of that. You should pray like this, Our Father, Our daddy in heaven, your name to be honored as holy. His love as a father is both grace and truth to us. Just as Justin Gibney says, Jesus is our model of love and compassion. He requires us to care deeply and to sacrifice. Yet he never told us to be led by sentiment alone. He consistently urges people to deal with their sin and brokenness and who's willing to lose followers when hard truths need to be spoken. 
So when we come to our father, our daddy father, he's also, his name is hallowed or holy and to be revered that way. There's this seemingly dichotomous position that we have in that moment. Daddy, your name is awesome and it is set apart from everything as perfect and pure, ethically, morally, in every conceivable way. What a position we find ourselves in. Daddy, your name is terrifyingly awesome. That's special that we have that privilege. What a privilege we have to call the creator of the cosmos, Father. Terrifying that he is so pure and holy and powerful. Paul Tripp says this, our translation for holiness comes from the Hebrew word kadesh, which means to cut. To be holy means to cut off or separate from everything else. It means to be in a class of your own, distinct from anything that has ever existed or will ever exist. Kadosh means a second thing. To be holy means to entirely morally pure all the time in every way possible. And it is exactly that holiness that creates that wonder and causes us to rejoice as in Exodus 15, 11, and asks, Who is like you, O God, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Or in 1 Samuel 2, 2, it declares, There is no one holy like our God, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. This is what his holiness does for us. What does it look like for us then to have that holiness and to be able to say, our Father who art in heaven, your name be honored as holy. What does it look like? The first thing it does is it gives us comfort. In every situation of your life, everything, anywhere you've been, you are in or will be in, it is in the sovereignty of God who is completely holy. And from our perspective, it often doesn't feel this way, but God is the one who is on the throne. He always does what is right. He always says what is true. And what he promises, he will always deliver. And so we, sometimes we have to repeat that to ourselves over and over again. Evil isn't in control. Injustice doesn't rule. Corruption is not king. Satan will not have victory. God is and always will be worthy of your trust for this one reason. He is holy. But it also provides for us that holiness or rebuke. Because every one of us has a problem, sin. It doesn't always appear sinful to us. It can look attractive and enticing sometimes. But it's only in the holiness of God that you fully realize that sin is more than a list of bad behaviors or more than breaking rules. Sin is a calamitous condition of the heart that causes us to rebel against the authority of God and do what we were never intended to do. It's the holiness of God that tells us that since we cannot escape ourselves, we all need a Savior who can do what we can't, rescue us from ourselves. You just can't consider the holiness of God without lamenting your sin and crying out for the grace of Jesus. 
which is why in Isaiah 6, 5, he said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When Isaiah came face to face with God in that vision, he looked and he saw him and he knew how unclean and sinful he was. Holiness. It does a third thing for us. It brings us to calling. Since holiness is actually the essence of God's character, it is who he is. Every other part of God resides inside of his holiness, the perfection of who he is. It becomes our calling as his, chair, as his children by inheritance. Peter, in his, his book, says this, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Jesus knows how Satan wants to twist everything, disguise, distort truth. So there's just enough lie in there to get you off track. So because he is holy, we can have this comfort. We can feel the weight of his righteousness in our rags uh, and, and our rags, and yet know that in him we are called pure. Once you pause in that certain place, it's time to pray. And then trust as you pray that God both loves you and likes you so much that he'll say both yes and no to you, just like your father might. And Jesus gives us a few, a few pointers on how we can pray. Because for Jesus, prayer to the Father from us should be like this. It should be simple, honest, and we should not lose heart. It should be simple like this. God, wow, help. I need you right now. It should be honest. And that we don't have to lie, we don't have to pretend, we don't have to perform or put on a show, because he knows it all. And when it comes to don't lose heart, we can see this in 2 Corinthians 4. Therefore we do not give up, even though our outer person is being destroyed and our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what, we see, what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. The Bible describes the practice of prayer as unseen. It's the unknown. It's the things whispered in the secret place to God. Jesus says it with focus that your father who sees what is in secret will reward you. See, prayer is often the practice of not seeing but trusting that we are seen by God. And sometimes we, we can't see prayer is working or making a difference. And Jesus doesn't skirt around this mystery or this reality of prayer. So let's read it again, but we'll emphasize a different word here. You should pray like this, our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. See, while we are spending time with God, he is outside or above or higher than any other place we could find ourselves. 
God is above it all. So even when our prayers are feel fleeting, when we feel like they don't have much power, God is above it all. We might be living in fear, but God's perfect love casts out fear because it is greater. We might be living in shame, but God's acceptance is, is in the work of his son. It's not in your work. We might be living in rebellion, but God, God is always looking, waiting, longing for you to return. J.R. Packer says this, adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers us. Higher than even justification to be right with, the, with God the judge is a great, God the judge is a great, is a great thing. I can read. But to be loved and cared for by God, the Father, is greater. It's one thing to be accepted by him. It's another thing to be loved by him. And that is the thin space that I hope you can all find. That when you pause to pray in that moment, the tangible presence of God is so real because his holiness and your proximity to him Jesus places us in proximity to our Father, and he simultaneously teaches us God is higher and ultimate, and his name is honored as holy. And that our spiritual enemy knows this, and he sows deception, which is, exact, which is the exact opposite of what God or Jesus is teaching. And when we go off kilter and become those Pharisees gloating in their supposed holiness, they always end up being repulsive and push people away. And nobody wants to be around someone who is always telling you that they are better than you. But God, but God became flesh and hung out with sinners and tax collectors, Pharisees and prostitutes while never becoming sin himself or needing to, to define his holiness against the backdrop of their brokenness. Only God knows both needs of humanity, our need to be set apart from sin and our need to belong in God's family. And only he can make a way for that. And when you read your Bible, especially the stories of Jesus and demons, you'll see this one thing. Demons can always correctly identify God's holiness but then they work to disguise that holiness from us. And to what end? It's because they know, they know this, that if God is holy, then he can't sin. And if he can't sin, then he can't sin against you. And if he can't sin against you, shouldn't that make him the most trustworthy being there is? Because the last thing the enemy wants is your complete, and utter trust in God. Darkness knows that where God is, holiness will be also, which means humanity is set apart from something to someone. And our sin has a similar intent to separate us from that someone to something, sin. When sin separates us from God, the lie is that God becomes the one who's holding you back from the good life. 
He's the one that's holding you back from pleasure. He's the one that's hiding you or holding you back from being who you really are. It becomes that somehow he's responsible for your unhappiness and the craziness that's going on in your life. Canada is a secular nation, which by definition is a nation attempting to live as though God doesn't exist. Which means it won't stop at no God until it's fully anti-God. A kingdom without a king. And here's the twofold temptation that Satan presents to us. To live apart from God and redefine good and evil in your own terms. Or to create a culture war between the us and them. But what are we told to do? But do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. If a people have never risen above or being greater than their view of God, then doesn't that motivate us to courageously and compassionately, prophetically hold out God to our world? to introduce them to a God who's both their dad and holy. For Jesus' prayer was rooted, uh, rooted joy in trusting his father, trusting that his father knew what he needed even before he had to ask him. A God who loves and likes us is worthy of worship. So here's our choice. Our father who loves us, or a father of lies. And so today we pause in this place and we recognize our heavenly dad. And we know that even though he's heavenly, he's closer than a brother. We know that he's holy and that brings comfort and an awareness of our brokenness and it calls us to holiness through Jesus. And that allows us to rejoice. Adopted sons and daughters of the king. So this week, when you pause in a place and trust that God is who he says he is, rejoice in that and pray simple, honest words. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the glory and the power and the honor for and ever and ever. Amen. Oh, 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 oh,